Hi there, House Culture listener. If you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed listening to other episodes in our series, please support and donate to us through the Acast Supporter feature. All donations will help us create the content that you love listening to. You can decide how much you give and there is no regular commitment. So it could be a one-off and every now and then or once every time you listen. It's really up to you. Click on the supporter link in the episode description and with Google or Apple Pay, it will take you less than 30 seconds to make your contribution. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Josh Butler, and you're listening to the House Culture Podcast. House Culture. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the third episode in season three of the House Culture Podcast, hosted by me, the managing editor at House Culture, Matt Rouse. Feels great to be talking to you right now, wherever you might be. Hopefully, this podcast can bring a little bit of clubland into your lockdown life at home. It's not long now until we can all get back on the dance floor. Stay strong, party people. It's so close, I can almost smell that smoke machine. If this is the first time you've tuned into the House Culture Podcast, please get crate digging through our previous episodes where we have chatted to a whole host of DJ icons like Danny Tanaglia, Fatboy Slim and David Morales, as well as some of the hardest working people within the scene, such as Pike's creative director Dawn Hindle, Balearic legend John Trencher, and live percussionist Bongo Ben. Honestly, if you don't recognise the name, give it a listen so we make sure all of our guests have a fascinating story to tell. And for those who still don't know what house culture is or what we stand for, we are a collective of house music fans who have come together through our mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. We're on Instagram at houseculturenet, so come and get busy with us in our virtual club there and we can celebrate everything we love about this beautiful scene together. So, should we get on with this next episode? In this one, we chat to a DJ and producer who has made a meteoric rise, establishing himself as one of the scene's most revered talents. It's Josh Butler. In our conversation, you'll hear how listening to live events on the radio inspired Josh from a young age. I would sit in my bedroom and listen to this music on Radio 1 and and listen to the crowd noise. When I got into those big arenas and heard that crowd that I'd experienced on the radio as a kid, I was just like mind blown, you know. The story behind the creation of his breakthrough single, 
Got a Feeling was put together in a matter of hours as well. I sent it to my friend, Jose, who did the vocals. I ended up pitching it down a few semitones and moving his vocal down and everything just fits so much nicer. And you just can't recreate those moments, you know? It was just uh, an instinct. What it was like touring with a bona fide disco legend. It just so happened that at the same time, Niall and Sheik were about to tour the UK. So um, yeah, we, we somehow got hooked up with Niall and we got to travel all of the UK with him. That was a pretty special memory as well. Being on stage with Niall Rogers, dancing to good times. <laughs> and how his DJ sets come together when he's playing live. When I'm in the zone with DJing, it's almost like I'm not doing anything. It's just sort of happening. Ideas are coming to me, you know, this record's going to go into this one. And then in the next 30 minutes, you want to up the tempo a little bit. That just sort of happens spontaneously. This one was recorded live and direct from Josh's current base in New Zealand. And I know you're going to enjoy it. This is Josh Butler. House Culture. Hi, Josh. Thanks for sitting down with us on the House Culture Podcast today. It's massively, massively appreciated. You're a DJ and producer who broke into the scene releasing massive tracks, winning awards and having Pete Tong describe you as one of the UK's premier house music talents. However, we always want to start at the very beginning and find out how you first discovered music and music that you loved when you were growing up. Yeah, okay. So my first early... The earliest memory of me remembering music and specifically um, electronics in music was hearing Welcome to the Machine by Pink Floyd. Mm-hmm. My dad's a huge Pink Floyd fan, so it was always being played around the house when I was a kid. And um, that one in particular, I don't know, there was just one time, he might have played it before then as well, but there was one time I remember thinking, like, what the hell is this? You know, the, the introduction of it is so weird and so atmospheric. They're using lots of samples and soundscapes and it was just really alien sounding to anything else I'd heard. Mm-hmm. And I must have been only about six at the time. And um, yeah, obviously didn't know what the hell was, what the hell it was. Yeah. But um, that was what kind of sparked my interest, I think. So you were six, so you're very, very young. I mean, yeah, somewhere around there, you know, I was I was very young. And, you know, in terms of dance music specifically, obviously everyone goes through that period of, you know, growing up and you're into kind of pop music or whatever's in the charts and whatever's popular and things like that. Was there ever a point where you started to lean more towards the dance music aspects? How did that come about? Yeah, so that... that probably crept in when I was a little bit older probably more like 10 and my mum was well still is she's a big fan of the podcast as well (laughs) Um, but she's really into house music and so she was buying like these compilation CDs I specifically remember there being a Pasha compilation you know, stuff that she'd just pick up in Asda when doing the shopping. She'd bring it home, play it around the house or in the car. That was kind of the next level for, for sparking my interest in electronic and specifically dance music. Mm-hmm. So so then I'd like tune into Pete Tong and some more local radio stations like Radio City that was in Liverpool. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a pretty cool show on Saturday night. And that was that really, you know, it just got absolutely hooked. And I was obviously too young to be going out. But I would sit in my bedroom and listen to this music every weekend. And um, I remember they used to broadcast um, some festivals on Radio 1. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember the name of there was one specific like trance type festival. Mm. Doesn't run anymore. Homelands. Homelands, yeah, that's <laughs> it. So they used to broadcast Homelands um, on Radio One, and mm. I'd sit and listen to that and listen to the crowd noise, and it was just like it blew me away. Honestly, hearing the atmosphere mixed with the music mm-hmm. was just next level for me as as a kid. Yeah, yeah, and like here, you know. Homelands I went to I was probably at one of the ones that you heard on the radio there are two there are two sets in particular from the first Homelands in 99 there's a Paul Oakenfold essential mix and a Sasha is on after him as well the crowd noise on those particular ones is just elevates it to the next level like you're saying if you know if you're not old enough to have gone out clubbing or to festivals at that point and you're listening in your bedroom what was your imagination doing? Did you understand how the DJs were creating this sound and mixing it up? And like, how did that work? No, I don't think I did at this point. I didn't really know about um, mixing records together. Mm. I don't think anyway, maybe I kind of knew the theory of it, but I didn't have a pair of decks at this point. However, I did get some, um, some cracked software um to, to start with so one of my dad's mates brought a stack of cds around a stack of um playstation games believe it or not mm-hmm. and one of them was music 2000 oh no way in yeah. fact it was the one before it was just called music mm-hmm. they released music 2000 later on um but yeah it was like a very basic sequencer on the playstation <laughs> yeah so that's how i started to get more of an understanding for how it was put together wow so your first kind of productions were on were on playstation yeah, funnily enough, I used to um, sequence these tracks in the in the PlayStation, and then I bounced them to tapes. And at the time, like my friends at school were having birthday parties, and some of them would hire a hall and a DJ and a buffet and that. So I would take my tapes to the DJ at these parties and ask him to play them. <laughs> did any ever get played? Yeah, yeah, they did a couple of times. No way. A terrible track, but all my mates <laughs> seemed to enjoy it. <laughs> I mean, you know, how old were you then? So how old were you? Uh, it, was, it was probably about 10 or 11. Wow. Wow. And even yeah, then, really young. what was that feeling like having, hearing your own music like played by a DJ and played loud? Was it something that you were like spark, suddenly sparked in your mind? Like, this is what I want to do? Or was it just fun at that stage? It was just fun at mm. that point. Yeah, I don't know. There was a lot of a lot of weird emotions going on. I was obviously quite proud to hear it and uh, on a big, big sound system. Well, say big in inverted commas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but... Um, also a little bit nervous about showing it to other people. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that that was the early days. So then I eventually got a little bit more serious and got a copy of Reason mm-hmm. and eventually Cubase. And that's when I was like really thinking, okay, this this could maybe go somewhere. I'm really into this now. And so you were producing stuff before. You mentioned you had decks and got decks you were producing stuff before you even got decks or how did those two yeah. combine yeah i was producing stuff for quite a few years before getting decks to be honest you know so you're already getting involved in this scene that you couldn't necessarily kind of participate in um in terms because you're so young um what, what was that feeling when you actually first started to go out and and go clubbing was it was it all that you had imagined yeah oh my god it was amazing mm. 
I mean, there's a lot to talk about in between that period of me being like very early teens up to 18. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. When I was 18, well, it was starting to go out a little bit before 18, but some of the bigger festivals are obviously a bit stricter. Mm-hmm. When I got into those big arenas and heard that crowd that I'd experienced on the radio as a kid, I was just like mind blown, you know. Amazing, amazing. So I feel like we've skipped something out there in, in those years. So what what were you wanting to talk about in those intervening years? Yeah, so after playing around with reason and stuff, I was probably about 12, 13 at this point. Uh, my parents decided they wanted to move to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. So uh, we moved over here, moved up to a place called Kerry Kerry in the Bay of Islands, which is a small kind of farmer town, fish, fishing farmer town. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously a lot different to the UK and there was zero music scene up there Mm. but um, I continued to just produce and you know obviously at the start I didn't have a big friendship group so I spent a lot of time at home just on the computer and making tunes after school every day just um, yeah just spent years doing that really Mm. and then eventually as we got older in school and I had a bigger group of friends people started to do parties because pe- people have a lot of land over here. Mm-hmm. There's not necessarily like big clubs up in Kerry Kerry or no, not even really any pubs. So people would do like raves really on, on the land. And I was like the only DJ that people knew of. Mm-hmm. So I would um, get asked to, to come along because I had decks at this point, bought mm-hmm. my first decks. So I'd get asked to, to bring the decks along. I had a little sound system and I'd play anything. I wasn't just playing dance music or playing hip hop or whatever people wanted to hear, basically. Mm-hmm. So that's that. That was another progression, I guess, in in my education of music. Yeah. So I mean, and and was that a point where you were like, I'm enjoying presenting this music to a crowd and just getting that feedback from them? Yeah. Well, I'd enjoy when I got to play house stuff. Wasn't really enjoying playing Tupac. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sometimes you have to play to the crowd, don't you? I suppose if it's you know, a teenage party, you have to play everything. But yeah, so you were more enjoying the house music sounds. House music and trance. Mm. I was really into hard house as well, but I, I wouldn't play that at these parties. I feel like that was a bit too far, a bit too fast and a bit <laughs> a bit heavy. Might scare people off. <laughs> so I'd play some house stuff and some more well-known trance tracks. How old, how old were you at that point then? I would have been about 16. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, New Zealand, like you say, it's it's a it's a long way from from where you grew up initially, and you know, a completely different scene. I'd imagine. Was there a, a point where you were like, okay, you know, this is kind of a career path for me, but it's not going to happen in New Zealand? Yeah, there was because I I did start to try and learn about the scene in New Zealand. I mean, it's mostly in Auckland, mm-hmm. which was four hours south of where we were living at the time. But one of my mates from school Brendan <laughs> he said that his brother had a, an internet radio show in in Auckland so I was like okay cool we started speaking over text and whatever and I sent him a couple of tracks that I've been making and he played them on the on the internet radio and that I think that was probably the moment you're talking about where I thought okay like if I'm getting plays on the radio even if it is an internet show you know the music might actually be half decent. So um slowly figured out that the scene over here was mostly drum and bass mm-hmm. and house and any 4-4 music didn't really exist. So, um yeah, decided to go back to the UK and study over there. 
Mm-hmm. Once I'd left school in New Zealand. Yeah. So whereabouts in the UK did you grow up? Did you go back to where you, you were growing up or did you move back somewhere different? I did, yeah, round about the same area. So I'm from the northwest. Mm-hmm. So I went to college in St. Helens, studied music tech. Yeah. And that was um, that was amazing. You know, one of the best decisions I ever made. I still speak to all the tutors at the college and was still very close. I feel like they helped me out a lot in the early days you know they gave me a lot of confidence and they could kind of see that i had a talent for producing electronic music Mm. so they really helped nurture me so you were back in the uk learning your craft what was the what was the next kind of break for you so i did three years at st helens college which was geared to towards more recording bands and sound for film and stuff so that gave me um, a broader knowledge of what careers could be possible within the music industry Mm -hmm. so um once those three years were finished i decided to go on to university do music tech again it was basically put all my eggs in one basket with the music thing (laughs) 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 and uh yeah moved up to leeds and did three years there which again was just um a big step forward learning um in in the course anyway learning more advanced stuff like acoustics mm-hmm. and building synthesizers which was really cool but also like outside of uni i was still producing all the time and going out and getting involved in the local scene which was the most important thing i think going out to different nights and uh experiencing different dj sets and um Getting to, getting to know a lot of people in the community as well, you know. Mm-hmm. I think that's a huge part of it. Being surrounded by like-minded people. Yeah, like-minded people with similar goals. Um, that was all quite new to me at the time because the St. Helens course was, it, yeah, it was very much like bands and um, more traditional stuff. And the, again, St. Helens isn't known for its clubbing scene. So being having like club nights, Every night of the week in Leeds was just a, a treat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, and like a, a whole breadth of genres and tastes as well. I think, it, like you say, I think it's really important to have that broad approach to having different influences across your musical taste to, to really inspire you. I mean, what, at that point, were you looking at any producers in particular or any DJs that you were really kind of wanted to emulate or or follow or was it just a case of I want to absorb all of this and push it through into my own music yeah I don't think there was anything in anybody in particular it's, I was going to drum and bass nights um hard house nights techno nights you know you name it we go to see the far side mm-hmm. uh, anything I just soak up the whole musical landscape because Leeds was we were really spoiled up there at one point you know it was such a thriving scene so um yeah sort of just i've always enjoyed a v- variety of music i think mm-hmm. so just continued to do that and still do i listen to all sorts of stuff yeah. i tend not to listen to a lot of dance music when i'm at home to be fair I go through stages of reggae and jazz uh got really into african jazz for a while mm-hmm. specifically e- ethiopian jazz it's got an amazing music scene over there uh-huh. yeah i've Certainly gone through a rabbit hole of Somalian disco about six months ago, which, oh, is, really? which is incredible. Yeah, honestly, there's there's some great stuff out there. Somalian disco? Yeah, there's, Sick. A, there's a brilliant, brilliant um, compilation album called Mogga Disco that's like 
next level yeah there's some stuff on there which is awesome but uh, I'll, I'll send you the link to that after this Please do. yeah no worries um cool all right so production wise obviously you've won uh, breakthrough artist awards and you know you've been on the essential mix and stuff like that how did you get to that point what was the the big break the biggest break for you at that stage next there was a, a couple of small breaks when i was in leeds I got signed to um, Carlo Leo's label, mm-hmm. Authentic. I remember having a really good conversation with Carlo over Skype, um, which has ne- never left me because that was pro- he was probably the first person I really got to know, like in the international dance music scene. And then I got also got signed to Off Recordings, which was pretty big at the time, Andre Crom's label. Mm-hmm. And so things were starting to, to take shape, but there was nothing like crazy going on yet. And then. I, w- I went shopping one night and on the way back from Morrison's I was driving home up Kirkstall Hill and got a, got a call off this unknown number and um, he said it was Will from Chasing Status and I was like nah you've, you're having me on and I was like, off who's this <laughs> and he said no no it's, he said it's Will we've heard one of your demos and we want to invite you down to the studio in London and talk about releasing it for you. So wow, that was like the, big, the biggest break. So that, that was Got a Feeling, which I think was released in 2012 or 13 and went on to be a huge success, like took on a life of its own completely unexpectedly. Yeah. So um, Chase and Status gave me a massive break at the beginning. That's amazing. And, um, you know, to, like you say, for a track... Uh, to be unexpected and to take on a life of its own as well was that was there a feeling of you know were you proud or did it feel kind of out of control like now that it was out there it did feel a little bit out of control yeah because it um I didn't know that many people in the industry at the time Mm. didn't have a manager or an agent or didn't know any music lawyers so sort of just bulldozed my way into this (laughs) and um like yeah 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 let's do it all then started getting agents coming, saying they wanted to represent me and publishers and all this. So I didn't even know what publishing was at mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit overwhelming, but there was a lot to there was a lot to learn. But it, I think that's the best way to learn, isn't it? Under pressure for me, you know, for me anyway, I find I work best with a bit of bit pressure applied. So um, learned very quickly mm-hmm. and tried not to um, to go too far down that commercial route. I actually said no to, to, to a few very tempting deals purely because I didn't want to be more overwhelmed. <laughs> I wanted to kind of keep a low profile and I've always been like the bedroom nerdy producer, you know, I've not been the big superstar DJ. Mm. So I tr- I played a few years of like bal- of a balancing act, I think. When you've been creating stuff and then it suddenly blows up, like you say, you have to go very quickly from being a creator to a businessman um, in a short space of time to understand that difference, like you say, to, to get your head around this archaic thing around like publishing and licensing and royalties and managers and agents. Even paying your tax, you know, it was all so new. Yeah, just being self-employed and figuring out the business as I was going along. Hmm. Um, it was an amazing experience in hindsight. And yeah, because I didn't want to go down that commercial route, I never really had the the pressures of making another hit. 
because mm-hmm. that was never intended. So I just continued to do what I was doing, you know, I just locked myself away in the studio and made beats, made underground records and tried to put my spin on the the sound that was going around Leeds at the time, I guess. It was a, yeah, there was a big, big tech house scene in Leeds and nights like Technicolor and, and Loosh mm-hmm. was a big one. So yeah, I'd go to those nights, get inspired and then try and do my own thing on it. Yeah, yeah. And like you say, if... If Got Feeling was, you know, an unexpected hit, so to speak, if you then wanted to try and recreate that and be like, well, I've got to produce a hit now, and it's hard to tap into that again and chase that idealistic dream, I think, you know, yeah, just keep doing what you're doing and that will make you a success and give you your own sound and be true to yourself. Yeah, totally. I mean, Got a Feeling was put together in a matter of hours as well. I mean, I think there was, there was two sessions on it. The first track was um, a little bit, higher I think it was in a, in a different key I sent it to my friend Jose who did the vocals and then I just didn't think it quite worked so I ended up pitching it down a few semitones and moving his vocal down and everything just fits so much nicer and you, like you said you just can't recreate those moments you know because it, it was just uh, an instinct mm. yeah just have all all the right parts seem to sound right together mm-hmm. um it's a catchy vocal and yeah that that's that just so so yeah after that i just continued to make weird more weird or underground beats i released uh, an ep on madhouse mm-hmm. oh sorry mad tech yeah kerry chandler's sub label of madhouse mm-hmm. um called no frills which was um yeah kind of counterbalancing what had happened with got a feeling <laughs> I mean, Kerry's obviously a massive legend, um, you know, a real originator from the back in the day. I mean, what was it like connecting with with him and working with him? Oh, it was brilliant. You know, Kerry's an absolute gentleman. We met each other in Paris for the first time. I got booked to play uh, a madhouse party at, um, oh, I'm going to forget the name of the club now. It wasn't Rex, but it was one of the other ones in Paris by the canal. I've been in quite a few nightclubs since then, so <laughs> forgive me. <laughs> um, but yeah, I met Carrie that night and we went for dinner and um, he showed me how he does the sound check at the venue, mm-hmm. which is very thorough. His sound check was longer than his set, I think. <laughs> <laughs> We were in there for hours. Unbelievable. See, somebody who takes their craft that seriously. What 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 was he going through, and what was he teaching you there? So he he had an iPad with uh, an analyzer. So he would um, put a CD into the CDJ with white noise, pink noise, and then sine wave sweeps. Mm-hmm. He would stand in the middle of the room on the dance floor with his iPad, and then he would analyze the frequencies and see uh what was ducking at what point you know and and then he'd run over to the the sound tech where they had a multi-band eq and he'd notch all the frequencies that needed to be balanced so it was it was really good it was how a live band would do it essentially yeah Yeah. Uh, you know it's not often you see djs putting that much uh, attention into the sound check so obviously i'd imagine that's something that you do at every single gig that you play at now that right <laughs> actually unfortunately there's not enough time sometimes to do that mm-hmm. i would love to you know and a lot of the time i do go and sound check but when things were crazy and i was touring a lot it could quite often just be in and out you know mm. and you'd have to put a lot of trust in the sound engineer yeah and i mean like you say there's a lot of trust when you're just rocking up to a club and just playing your set are there any moments where you're like oh man this is this is totally not working and you know i, I just need to 
hunker down and get through with it or yeah the, well there's been a few you know i find the festivals can sometimes be a bit like that mm. there's a, there's usually always a sound tech on hand so i'll always speak to him before and i'm always at my set at least an hour before anyway yeah. so i'll speak to the sound guy and try and level things out as much as i can before just jumping on but yeah there's been there's been a few hairy moments at festivals where the sound's not worked or there's been some technical issues but I try not to think about them too much anymore. <laughs> I mean, you know, DJing now is so technical, you know, it relies so much on, on um, you know, electronics in it in a way. How terrifying is it when things don't go right or, you know, something fails or have you ever had those moments where suddenly everything just stops and you're like, oh, oh shit. Oh, yeah, yeah, plenty of times. <laughs> I mean, it, it's going to happen at some point. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit stressful, of mm. course, but usually the crowd are usually quite forgiving, you know. They'll cheer, and as long as it doesn't happen every five minutes, it's usually a, a fun point of the night where everybody's just like, wee, <laughs> it's back to business. Yeah, It can yeah. sometimes um, upset the flow of a DJ set, you know. If I'm really in the zone and been building an energy for two hours, and then all of a sudden it just cuts off. It's a little bit of a buzzkill, but you've just got to get your head down and try and get through it and just move on. I mean, you mentioned building an energy there and you've toured with Nile Rogers and Sheik as the opening DJ for their performances. There's so much to unpack from that. I mean, you know, how did that come about? You know, obviously Nile and Sheik is a huge, you know, hit machine that he is and I've seen him play live a few times and every single time it's been incredible I mean how did that call come in and what was your feeling on it and how did you approach working with him so it sort of started because me and Bontan were touring the UK at the time together doing back-to-backs we were doing an extended back-to-back set or sorry back-to-back tour called Be True Mm -hmm. which was about paying respect and being true to the roots of house music. And it just so happened that at the same time, Niall and Sheik were about to tour the UK, pretty much like overlapping what we were doing. And somebody that we were working with at the time was really good friends with Niall and put these two ideas together. Uh, Disco obviously being the foundation for house music and what me and Bontan were doing with celebrating and making some more classic house sounding records as well. We we did a track called We Found a Place mm-hmm. with Josh Barry and um, Live My Life with Vula from Basement Jacks, mm-hmm. which are very like soulful house kind of records. I'd say modern soulful house. So um, yeah, we, we somehow got hooked up with, with Niall and um, he was really keen on the idea, loved what we were doing musically. And um, we got to travel all of the UK with him. We did five or six gigs. Wow. from Glasgow to, to London and everywhere in between. I mean, what was the brief to you guys from him? Was it just like, do your own thing? Or was it like a case of... He didn't really give us any rules. So we would play, obviously play a lot of disco stuff. Mm-hmm. But we would also play stuff like Ultranate, mm-hmm. some more like well-known house records, some of the Strictly Rhythm classics. Because um, the crowds were a little bit older, mm-hmm. you know, they were they were chic fans. They weren't there to see me in Bontan. So we weren't playing really any of our records. We were playing a lot of older stuff that would resonate with them, I think. And um, yeah, also would not take the limelight off Niall. But I, I tell you, every time he came on stage, like he'd come over, he'd give us a big hug and say thank you. And then he'd introduce us on the mic. 
And um, as soon as he comes on stage, people just go crazy. You know, he's got such a personality. Yeah. And when he's introducing the tracks that he's made or had a part in or produced or whatever, it's always like, oh, my God, he did this and this. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's countless. You know, watching him or watching the band do um, Let's Dance, David Bowie, was one of my favourite memories of that whole week doing the tour. Yeah, Mm. it was uh, really special. And then at the, at the end, I'm sure anybody who's been to a sheet concert will know at the end they do good times and everybody comes onto the stage, all of the staff and security and mm-hmm. anybody who's involved backstage will come on and, and dance on the stage. So that that was a pretty special memory as well. Yeah. Being on stage with now Rogers dancing to good times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, try and top that. I mean, I did see him at the Roundhouse in, in Camden in London and he was supported by Janelle Monet. And at the end, all of her and her crew came on and they're all dancing as well. And it's just like, oh, my God, this is like a proper party now. It was, yeah, a proper party. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, we went, went to a few fun after parties with, with Niall's team as well. Mm-hmm. Niall didn't come along, but, um, yeah, his, his manager, Pete, and a few of the other team came over and we had a really good time. <laughs> <laughs> as you would expect, as you would hope. I mean, was there any was there any advice given to you from from the great man himself? We had a we had a few conversations backstage, but it was mainly just about the night and mm. what was going on. Mm-hmm. We didn't get too philosophical. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, was there there was never a temptation to play any of the tracks that he might be doing in his set? Would you have just got kicked off the tour? <laughs> Can be a hard one to avoid sometimes because mm. he's been in that many. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool. And yeah, so I want to talk about your record label as well. I mean, you set up Origins Records in 2016 and you mentioned there as well about, you know, being on a tour and paying homage and reverence to the original kind of house music sound. And on Origins, you know, you've worked with 
Marshall Jefferson, Todd Terry, Robert Owens. I mean, these guys are big stars from the original days. What was the thinking behind setting up the label? Was it always to work with people from that era and bring them into this era now? Or did it just happen? There was an element of that, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to extend the idea of the Be True thing because I just had so much fun doing it and I was loving learning about the history of the music and where it came from. And at the same time, getting to know these guys like Marshall and Todd and Kerry and and learning about the history of it from them. You know, mm-hmm. some of the stories that Marshall's told me, um, it's absolutely amazing about the, the first days in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And funnily enough, Marshall was living like 30 minutes down the road from me at the time in, in Manchester. No so yeah, yeah. So wh- when I found that out, we started going for dinner once a week and just talking just yeah, discussing music and ideas and so the idea for origins the label started to come around mm-hmm. and i asked these guys if they wanted to collaborate with me to help launch the label mm-hmm. so i did a series called the heroes of house and we had this amazing artwork designed from a guy in brazil uh, he did all these like comic book style superheroes but with marshall jefferson's head and uh carrie's head Really cool. So yeah, I think we did four releases of that. I did one with Robert Owens as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was kind of the launch of the label. There was a kind of old school guy on one side and a more modern producer on the B side. Yeah. So that was when Call You Back came into things as well, mm-hmm. with Bontan, because we released Call You Back as a B side to one of those Heroes of House tracks. Um, and, th- and things just grew with the label from there, really. Uh, I couldn't just release the originators of House Forever. So I started to, to move more into releasing some of the music I was being sent from newer producers and friends of mine in music as well. You know, how important is it for you to have your own label and outlet? in terms of releasing things for me now it's one of the most important parts of what i do Uh, i maybe didn't see the whole value of it at the beginning but the way it's grown and the way people have received the music on there it's been it's been amazing yeah having creative control of not only the music but the artwork and the way it's presented online yeah i really like being um at the driver's seat more in control of my release schedule as well. Mm-hmm. I can shift things around if needs be. I can choose who um, I want to remix. You know, I can get some really cool remixes on board. It's it's fun. It's <laughs> I really enjoy doing that side of it these days. Yeah. And, and during this whole COVID lockdown situation, um, obviously you're in New Zealand, so you're, you're um, having a mildly different experience kind of right now than a lot of uh, Europe and the UK in particular, how has it changed to how you've been releasing music or making music during this period? The, the making music one has been a, a bit of a roller coaster, to be honest. I think I've gone through a lot of different stages with producing from making club bangers to like liquid drum and bass, all sorts of stuff. But with the label, yeah, last year, especially in 2020, I did make a conscious effort to switch the release schedule around to suit being at home more, I suppose, more easy listening house records, stuff with vocals and probably more of the classic sound that our Origins was known for at the beginning mm-hmm. rather than the club tracks. But I think as time's gone on and, yeah, I was getting used to being at home a lot more when I was still in the UK, I didn't pay that much attention 
to it. I just started releasing tracks. I thought, you know, this is what we we love. We love this music, and this is what it's known for mm-hmm. as a label. So, I'm just going to continue to release bangers, even if there isn't any dance floors. <laughs> People can still dance in the garden or the kitchens. <laughs> Why not? Why not? It's um, our last uh, conversation with Alan Fitzpatrick, and he was talking about how it's going to be strange when people do hit the dance floor again and and DJs um, get back out there and behind the decks in clubs there's going to be this whole almost like a year's worth of material that is is that going to be seen as old but it was never really played in a club so how do you approach bringing that in you don't want to come in and be playing stuff that's seen as old but you still want to be able to give this music a chance to thrive in that environment which is made for what do you think about that I hope that the the kind of stigma involved around playing old tracks disappears because mm-hmm. I'm I'm one for playing anything from whatever year as long as it sounds good to me and I think it's going to work within that set mm-hmm. doesn't matter if it's from 93 or from 2021 yeah I think that there's obviously a lot of music that wasn't played in the intended environment last year so for me personally, I'm definitely going to be playing it, be playing it for years to come, I think. That's great. I mean, I love seeing a DJ that isn't afraid of that. Like you say, uh, you know, I do want a sprinkling of, you know, stuff from different eras and different genres almost to, to show that you're educating the audience in a good way, not just playing like the most upfront stuff that all can sound very similar. Totally. Variety is the spice of life and it's the same with music. I want to talk about the Essential Mix as well, which you did for Radio 1 in in 2018. And, you know, like you've mentioned about hearing Homelands and things like that on Radio 1, for me growing up, the Essential Mix was, you know, a must-listen-to show. Always had to try and seek out to find to like a shop that would sell two hour cassettes so I could record the whole thing sometimes I have to set a timer plug on my thing to turn on at god knows what time to record it for me (laughs) (laughs) um and I mean I suppose for me like the essential mix is is still an incredible show and always a must listen uh you know uh, getting that call and putting that together what was that like for you Uh, I mean it's one of the biggest achievements of my career and uh I spent a lot of time searching through music old and new, going through old records that I've collected over the years and even some CDs, even like compilation CDs that I used to like the tracks of. And then I'd try and track down the original, but buy the vinyl of the of the full version, mm-hmm. rip the vinyl. And then, um, yeah, I spent a lot of time putting that track list together, which I don't normally do, to be quite honest. With mixes, I tend to just go with what feels right and sort of throw it together up there there and then on the spot so yeah spent a lot of time planning that essential mix and the progression of it going through some soulful stuff at the beginning proper like barbecue garden vibes um progressing into you know getting people in the mood and then ready to go out mm-hmm. i think my mix was intended for that that evening period where you've just finished dinner you're having a few drinks you're getting a bit lively conversations flowing and then yeah, gradually people just get more into the music. The music will become more of the focus than the conversation and people start dancing. Mm-hmm. It was about building that two hours for me. Yeah. The warm up, I think. Yeah. I, for me, a warm up DJ, a good warm up DJ is almost as good as the main, the main act as well. It's such a difficult and important job to be able to do that well, I think. Uh, I love the, 
you know, arriving in a club and the dance floor is quite empty, but you're standing by the bar and your head's nodding and then you, you know, your feet start to move a bit more and then you get a bit closer to the dance floor and then it's Shimmy like, over to the dance floor, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which track is it that's going to make you move from the edge of the dance floor onto the dance floor? It's those switch moments I love. You know, they're the magic moments. And as a DJ, that's, um, that is the key. I think mm. as a good DJ, you, you're there to get people moving and to, to settle in, settle in for the night, especially the warm up DJ, you want to prepare them for the headliner. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how I approach my essential mix. And I mean, we kind of touched on it a little bit, but, um, about you making music and a bit more kind of easy listening and, uh, during this period and, you know, you have been releasing stuff under a different alias, um, Denton, um what was the the thinking behind that apart aside from just releasing more um more interesting stuff and having a, a different outlet from under the josh butler name is there a, is there a specific difference between the two vibes that you're trying to create there is i mean i think that there probably is a few crossovers but with josh butler over the years like as a name as an artist i feel like i've released quite a broad spectrum of house music from vocal tracks like feels good on defected with hanley to more techno stuff on rejected with yoris vaughan and i've always really loved both sides of it but i feel like there's only so far i can go with one artist name so the idea with denton is it lets me explore the more vocal song kind of world and collaborate with a lot of singers and songwriters Mm -hmm. and also give them a lot of creative control and have it as a more collaboration project than Denton being just me. You know, it's um, it's a collaboration thing. Cool. And I want to talk about Ibiza. You've got obviously a massive affinity with the island. You've played pretty much, from my research, pretty much every party that's, <laughs> that's been done on the island in every club. And you've got, um, you know, a long-standing partnership with Mambo as well. What is it about that place for you that just um, is so magical? It's oh, it's so hard to put it into words. Mm. Uh, you know, Ibiza, it sounds really cliche, but Ibiza definitely has that magic. Um, I've heard a lot of people say it, it could be to do with the magnetism on the island, something to do with Esvedra mm-hmm. being for, apparently the third most magnetic point on the planet. So without being too woo-woo, maybe that's um, a big part of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But obviously the the music community there mm-hmm. is just the, the, for what we do as DJs and producers, it's the place, you know, it's where you hear all the cutting edge tracks of that, of that year. Mm-hmm. It's where you can see all of your favourite DJs. Uh, you can go out seven nights a week if you want. But on the flip side, you, you can also live Ibiza in a very different way. There's lots of amazing restaurants, beautiful beaches. Um, now a lot more like yoga retreats and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So um, I feel like for anybody creative or open-minded, uh, Ibiza is a, a very cool place to spend time. Yeah, and I mean, you, you know, you, you have played all over the island. Um, what's your favourite club and what's your like best Ibiza or most Ibiza type memory that always springs to mind <laughs> that, you, that you can tell me on a podcast that your mum listens yeah, to? Yeah, I was going to say there's probably a few. <laughs> but I think in terms of favourite club, it's probably DC10. Mm-hmm. I've been really lucky to play in the main room a couple of times now for Paradise. 
yeah, the last time I did it, the 2019, I actually played the first set of the, the main room. So I was kind of on that warm-up tip and seeing people come in from the terrace outside and my room slowly fill up mm-hmm. and just the atmosphere get looser and looser. It was, um, that's one of my best Ibiza moments for sure. You know, I don't think two hours was long enough to play in there. It flew by. Yeah, I think two hours is a good is a good starter for a DJ. I think an hour is too short. I mean, what's your preference in terms of a set? Obviously, the longer the better, right? Sometimes is two hours enough even? T- two hours uh, is enough to get going. Mm. Yeah, um, you know, just take a little bit of time to get moving. But um, I think p- personally, three or four hours is probably like a sweet spot. Because mm-hmm. I have played a lot longer, you know. I'm sure you've heard of the Lost Beach Club in yeah. Ecuador. Yeah, yeah. So people um, they have like competitions. Basically, all the DJs have competitions who can play the longest. <laughs> because the the promoter and club owner Cami, he'll just give you free reigns and say play as long as you want, do do what do whatever you feel like. So um, the longest I've done over there is eight or nine hours. Yeah, and by the ninth hour, I was getting you know a little bit tired and thinking oh what am I going to play now and uh, I think that was enough for me personally nine hours is probably like the peak (laughs) when I've had all my fun (laughs) but I've heard WAF and a few few of the other boys have played for like 24 hours or something mad yeah it's nuts and you know how do you keep that energy and you've got to bounce around so many different sounds to play for that long you've got to have a real sense of what you've got in your box to be able to play that long yeah that's it and don't get me wrong i adore djing and sharing music to people but um yeah i think there's a sweet spot in between there Mm. for Mm -hmm. sure where you can like really you can you can be loose and you can be in the zone just fully in the moment of what you're going to play before before you start overthinking things. I think once you're getting into like seven, eight, nine hours, you're starting to overthink stuff. Where for me, it almost, when I'm in the zone with DJing, it's almost like I'm not doing anything. It's just sort of happening. Mm-hmm. And ideas are coming to me, you know, this record's going to go into this one and then into this one. And this is, in the next 30 minutes, you want to up the tempo a little bit maybe go a little bit harder and then in an hour we're going to bring it down again you know that just sort of happens spontaneously mm-hmm. it, it happens in the studio as well actually where you can you're just so present and you know p- producers will tell you this where time just disappears i'm sure it happens with it with any art or uh, any serious focus where you're that into something you sort of lose yourself in it yeah Obviously, we're in this strange period now where clubs are closed or there's not much stuff going on. What are your thoughts on how the scene is going to have changed in this environment post-COVID? Because there is going to be a moment where everything is open again and um, people are allowed to gather. You know, do you think it's just going to be a huge release and there's going to be parties seven days a week? Or do you think people are going to be a bit more cautious? It's such a tough call, isn't it? A big part of me thinks that it's going to boom. And I think um, once we're allowed big gatherings, I think there'll be more festivals, especially like outdoor things. It's, there's so much to it, but I, I hope there's going to be a lot more, a lot more demand for people wanting to go out and just live day by day, you know, yeah. rather than um, than think, oh, put it off till next month. You know, they'll just do it, yeah. live for the moment a little bit more. Yeah, you're right. And I mean, in that post-COVID world, 
that we're moving towards. What have you got coming up? Have you got any plans for anything like right now or are you saving things for you know a bit further in the future where things are a bit more back to normal how, how what's your workflow in that sense I, I honestly i'm not saving things anymore i'm just um working as normal trying to stay focused and release music as as i was i think this i think people still want to hear dance music so we will provide so I mean we've talked about producing and DJing and another tool in in the, the arsenal of a producer is obviously remix work as well. Is there anyone or any remix that you've done where you've had to go that extra mile or it's really taught you something? There's just one um, nerdy bit of research that I had to do when <laughs> doing this Carl Cox remix. So basically I got asked to do this this mix for Carl uh, of a track called I Want You Forever. Mm-hmm. I think it was the 15th anniversary of the track. So they wanted to get some more modern remixes to celebrate it. And um, they sent me the parts, but obviously because it was made so long ago on what is now primitive equipment, lots of tapes and you know the parts weren't very clear. Mm-hmm. The vocal was covered with like break beats and it was quite quite a tricky thing to piece together. So I did a bit of digging into the samples of where Carl found the, the original parts from. For anybody who doesn't know, there's a website called Who Sampled. Oh, I love that website. <laughs> it's great, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You can spend hours digging through tracks on there, you know, and the stuff that I thought had been original has been sampled, you know, countless times sometimes. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, just did, did a bit of digging on there and found out where the original vocal was from. It's from a track called Love Will Find A Way by Victor Romero. The great, great track, the original. And again, that's been sampled quite a lot of times in early house music and, and rave stuff. Yeah. That was quite a cool project to work on. It, it made me think about a bit outside the box. And isn't it great when you, when you, especially when you're on that website, but when you hear those tracks, those originals, and you're like, holy shit, these are amazing yeah there's a lot of gold on there yeah. some great s- stuff from the 70s and um from, from from all eras really people have sampled from all over the show and it just opens up that rabbit hole like oh well th- he sampled it from that that's the original track can i get like a re-edit of that track <laughs> exactly you, you nailed it it's a rabbit hole yeah i can get get lost on the on that website and um yeah learning about samples and it's it's yeah it's a pastime of mine let's put it that way <laughs> <laughs> an education all right i mean yeah let's move on to the to the playlist then um you know speaking of tunes and and tracks in terms of educating listeners we've got a massive playlist that all of our guests have contributed to um it's over i think it's like 18 hours now of, of of tracks across every genre so just you know we always recommend just to stick it on um on random and there is some random stuff on there but it's all good and all uh, been through the quality control of our guests. And I mean, you know, we always start off with a catalyst, uh, what, you know, a first track that got you into electronic music or dance music. And you've already kind of talked about it, the Pink Floyd, Welcome to the Machine. I mean, is there anything more around that track that you want to mention, apart from it being like this crazy, spacey, very Pink Floydian sample machine? Yeah, yeah. Um, I almost feel like Welcome to the Machine was kind of like the the machine maybe being the music industry and me being welcomed into that which is which is another layer of my appreciation for that moment it's a great way of looking <laughs> at it 
yeah, for anybody who's not heard it, you should definitely check it out because, I mean, I'm not sure exactly when it was released, probably mid, mid to late 70s, I'd, I'd guess. Mm. Um, but yeah, the sound design and uh, the techniques they were using were like groundbreaking at the time, you know, tape loops and yeah. um, new synthesizers for the 70s. Yeah, yeah. Weird sounds, very alien sounds. Yeah, I mean, my my experience with Pink Floyd as well, like, you know, my, my dad was never into like that kind of sound. So my exposure to them kind of came much later on. And I remember I hadn't even heard like Dark Side of the Moon. And I saw there's a brilliant documentary called Classic Albums that goes into um, the making of that album. It's got interviews with obviously, you know, Alan Parsons, the producer and all the guys from Pink Floyd. It's probably about 20 years old now, this documentary, but it's amazing. And it, I didn't, I wasn't familiar with any of the tracks on the album, and it took you through the making of them all. And I was like, "Holy shit! This like the techniques they were using, the way they've made, put it together. This is incredible." And at the end of the documentary, um, Dave Gilmore, the guitarist, was like, "Oh, I'm. I wish that I could be that person who could put headphones on and listen to that album for the first time." And I was like, "You know what, Dave?" I'm going to do that tomorrow. And I went and bought it and put it on and then it just blew me away. And I was like, wow, this is, I love this. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of layers. Um, and I think new producers could probably take something out of that where if you listen to that album on different speakers, you'll always hear something new. Mm-hmm. There's so much going on hidden in the mix and in the stereo field. Yeah. If you listen to it in headphones, you're going to hear hear it differently to when you listen to it in the car it's um a fascinating way of producing yeah yeah and um okay so let's move on to your next choice um which is the uh floor filler a go-to floor filler do you want me to remind you what it is or do you remember (laughs) no i remember yeah it's um space cowboy the david morales remix i mean this is one of the first tracks that i probably heard when i was getting into it you know it would have been on one of those compilations that my mum was bringing home mm-hmm. and um it's been with me ever since you know and um it's not often i get to play it but it's in certain parties and certain environments that i know um you know and the crowd's up for a good time and that's always gonna go on you know it's just such an uplifting track yeah it's such a good one and um when we interviewed david morales actually he talks about uh, making that um, doing that remix and the fact that it was you know he got a one-off fee for it and it ended up being bigger than the actual original track he feels not necessarily aggrieved by it but he missed missed out on a lot of uh, a lot of money I think oh no way yeah, yeah well I, I did actually listen to that and caught him talking about how he he replayed all of the elements mm. not there aren't many of the original instrumental parts actually in his remix a lot of it is recreated, which you know is is amazing. Hats off to the guy. Yeah. What a musician! I know. <laughs> okay, and I mean this next track, your sunsetter, is just um, celebrated its thirtieth birthday, um, which is what? What's your sunsetter? And tell us about that and your experience with that. It's a massive attack, unfinished sympathy. I didn't realise it had just had its thirtieth birthday. That is amazing. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. It just goes to show that it's going to stand the test of time for the next 30 years mm-hmm. because it's it still sounds flawless to me. And yeah, it's, when you mentioned Sunsets, it's one of the, the first tracks that springs to my mind. 
and I'll still listen to it. Uh, the Paul Oakenfold mix as well, mm-hmm. stunning. So uh, I listen to those weekly still. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they are, um, oh, yeah, both just the strings and the emotion and the build and everything. There's so many elements to that track. I mean, I'm just getting goosebumps just thinking about it now. I love that track so much. Yeah, I'm a sucker for chord progressions like that, mm. emotive chord progressions. Uh, and that that's, that track's got it all. You know, you could dance to it. You could sit and have dinner to it and watch the sunset. Um, it's a very versatile piece of music made for any occasion. Absolutely. And I mean, you talk about emotion and emotive kind of chord progressions and changes and things like that. Um, your tearjerker, what have you chosen for that? I've chosen Arrival of the Birds, uh, the cinematic orchestra. Mm-hmm. And I probably could have chosen a few. I could have chosen a few for all of them, to be fair, let's face it. But um, yeah, there's something about chord progressions and um, especially string arrangements, orchestral music, that does make me emotional, actually. Um, it can... I mean, I, I know it does for a lot of people, but um, if, a, if I'm watching a film or something, um, I have to like hold it back sometimes. I'm like, oh God, this is getting me now. <laughs> it's as soon as that, that chord changes, you know. I mean, music makes emotion in films, um, makes it feel a lot more real. Mm. But yeah, Arrival of the Birds, it's, um, it's, it's a moving... One of the versions is quite short, actually. It's only about three minutes. But um, yeah, I just love the melody in it. It's quite... Um, it's not sad, but it's uh, it's emotive, yeah. And speaking of like really emotive tracks as well, your your last tune. What have you chosen for that? <laughs> yeah, this is a, a completely the opposite end of the spectrum. <laughs> this is what I would drop. Well, you, you asked me what I would drop as a last track mm-hmm. during a set, and I gave you an example of one I dropped the other week at a festival in Auckland. Mm-hmm um prodigy smack my bitch up which has been has been in my record box for so long but just never had the opportunity to play it and honestly didn't think i would but i was kind of uh i don't know i was just experimenting i felt a bit cocky maybe and had a few tequilas and um i started queuing up in the headphones and it was mixing perfectly into the, the track before so i just made a little loop of the first part of smack my bitch up you know and it, honestly it worked like a charm and i had no idea how i was going to mix out of it because i end that, that didn't actually be the last track there was one more after that okay so it was a little bit tricky to mix but um it was an amazing moment yeah something i've always wanted to do I hear that on a massive sound system or play, play it myself on a massive system and um, what was the reaction to it was you know it's yeah. definitely a classic I think people's reaction were a little bit shocked at first, but um, it was just a laugh, you know. It just it 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 really worked at the time, and it was nothing too serious. It was just a fun way to end the night. Well, I mean, that's the the last track, and you know, we come on to the to the last question that we always ask our guests, and um, we are house culture, and you are part of that culture in the scene. Can you just sum it up for us, what it's brought into your life and um, what you feel like it's going to hold for your future? Mm, Big question, because it's brought so much to my life. My life has revolved around um, the dance music scene and being a part of the, the community as, you know, I've made some of my best friends through music. I wake up thinking about music, go to bed thinking about music and have done for many years. So, um, yeah, I think what it means to me, um, 
it's community, I think. Yeah, we all have uh, the exact same passion. We're all on the dance floor for the same reason, enjoying the same style of music. And it, it truly is the international language, or the universal language. You know, I've traveled, been very lucky to travel to some amazing places around the world um, and not necessarily been able to speak their language and, and communicate with the event organizers or, or fans that are at the show. But we connect through the mutual love of electronic music. That is a great final thought, I think, to end on. So let's leave it there. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Josh. Pleasure. Yeah, really good. Because yeah, I'm genuinely a big fan, listening to you a lot at the moment. House Culture. See, I told you that you were going to enjoy it. How amazing was that? incredibly humbling for us at house culture to hear that josh is a fan of the podcast as well please keep listening when you can josh i also loved hearing about his journey from producing tracks onto tapes from his playstation all the way through to not only touring with Nile rogers and chic working with legends such as todd terry and marshall jefferson but also creating new and exciting material that is pushing our scene forward long may that continue and the name of the club in Paris that bore witness to that fascinatingly epic Kerry Chandler sound check was Concrete. Now, you heard us talk about Josh's incredible 2018 Essential Mix, which you can find in all the usual places. And once you've listened to that, make sure you fire up your Spotify player and search for the House Culture Perfect playlist, where you find the tracks that Josh chose for our five themes, as well as his breakthrough single, Got A Feeling. Our perfect playlist is a massive beast now. It's over 18 hours long. So stick it on shuffle and get your day soundtracked by the submissions from all of our previous podcast guests. Again, to find it, all you need to do is search for House Culture Perfect Playlist on Spotify. Once you're listening to that, please help support this podcast by loving, liking, tweeting, sharing and rating or reviewing us on Apple. We've had some fantastic feedback already. So if you say something good, it will not only help us to continue to create these episodes that you love listening to, it could also get you a shout out on a future episode as well. This time around, I'm shouting out to fellow DJ and Monologues Records label head, Ben Gamori. You got in touch via email to say that he thinks the podcast is great and he's really enjoyed catching up. Thanks for taking the time to get in touch, Ben. And I really hope the podcast has been helping you feel connected to the clubbing community during these strange times. And if you want to join us at House Culture from wherever you might be in the world, please hit up our Instagram feed at HouseCultureNet or follow the hashtag TrueHouseCulture. Not only will you be fully informed about the podcast, you'll also get connected with other house music lovers from across the globe. And finally, if you want to get in touch with me, Matt Rouse, you can do it directly on Instagram at DJ Matt Rouse. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and see you next time. House Culture. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.